0: Good morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you are in the world. And it is our body, our business podcast uh, with Oksana, myself, and Olya. And we are joined today by an amazing guest that we've been following for a while with me and Olya. And then one day we decided we should invite her. So we are very excited to um, talk today to Sarah Day So, Sarah is a specialist and psychotherapist in binge eating disorder, and she is an author of the book I Can't Stop Eating. By the way, you can listen to the whole book on YouTube because she read the whole book by herself and uh, it is on YouTube. Sarah also has a YouTube channel, The Binge Eating Therapist, and she has, she co hosts a podcast, Life After Diets. Hello, Sarah. We are very excited to have you today. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Hi, Oxana. Hi, Ola. Thank you for having me. It's great pleasure. And we will be
0: talking today all about binge eating because you obviously know everything about it, and we are very interested in a psychological part of behavior when it comes to nutrition and lifestyle and body image and whatever people want to do with their bodies. But the most important part there is a psychological component so but before we go there we would like to hear your story because when people do something or they choose a certain profession there is a background behind so if you could share your story and why do you do what you do sure sure
1: the other day someone said to me oh you use the binge eating therapist that that sounds like a binge eating therapist I said yeah that's kind of the point because it's something that I've struggled with in the past and through my own healing journey went on to help other people to do the same um, so mine this is the thing with binge eating when you said in your introduction oh you know she knows everything about binge eating I thought well, well I don't know that <laughs> that's almost too much to ask it's like no one profession can know everything because there is a nutrition element for some people and there is a medical element for some people and a psychological and an emotional and the past and all of these different things together motivation so there's a place for all these different professionals and most people can't get a whole team of professionals to help them it's too expensive it's not available so I guess it's each person figuring out what resonates with them and finding the right professional for them so anyway my binge eating didn't start until my mid-20s so some people start binge eating because it starts very young. Maybe they self-soothe with food when they're younger and then that turns into more dieting, which turns into more binging. Or maybe they have a restrictive eating disorder that goes into binging. Mine was a little bit different. So in my mid-20s, I did, for the first time, try to lose some weight. I never had before. I'd always grown up in a very um, slim body. When I'd gained a tiny bit of weight and I thought, I'm just going to, you know, the old eat less and move more non-descript advice it's as simple as that I thought okay I'm just going to do that a little bit Uh, and I did for a couple of weeks and I lost this very small amount of weight it was not extreme I didn't feel deprived but from that moment onwards I couldn't stop binging and I think I binged every day for nine months and at that time I also had night eating syndrome which is getting up in the middle of the night and eating large quantities of food I would go out for meals and I would be full from dinner. Maybe I'd go out with friends and all I can think about is I can't wait to get home and carry on eating. Um, so for me, it was so sudden, so extreme and so out of the blue, which isn't necessarily the case for a lot of people. And I was searching, searching, searching for an answer. And um, I was gaining weight very quickly as well because of the amount that I was eating. And I think around the nine-month mark, maybe 6 months something like that i i found this binge eating disorder on the internet this was before it was a standalone eating disorder it used to be come under like eating disorder other in the categorization mm-hmm. and i thought okay that sounds like me i tried to get some help for that but cbt nothing seemed to help even though i was doing everything i was told the binging didn't slow down um and then it was around the 9 month mark that Um, it then turned into bulimia I was so distressed by the weight gain that I took to quite extreme measures to try to halt the speed of the weight gain Um, and then I found out I think it was maybe 18 months in something like that um, or a year in I decided to come off the contraceptive pill and when I first stopped taking the contraceptive pill for the first time in I don't know nearly a year I didn't binge for three weeks like the, the desire just went and I thought I found the answer. It was because I'd read the information on the contraceptive pill and it had said, mm-hmm. you know, can cause um, yeah. uh, excessive appetite. And I was like, oh, that's the answer. But then it came back, which was, I can't tell you guys how devastating that was when I thought I'd found the answer. And it, I thought, oh, it's biological. It's not all in my head. Um, but because I'd come off the contraceptive pill, another six months or so went by and I didn't get my period. And at this time, I think I was 27, about that kind of age. And so they started investigating and they found a tumor on my pituitary gland, which was affecting all my hormones. So my estrogen was wiped out. My thyroid hormone was wiped out. um, My growth hormone was really low as well. um, And other hormones that they, they don't even replace. As I started taking hormone replacement therapy with these different hormones, each time I replaced one, I felt a bit better for a while and it would stop for a couple of weeks and then it would come back again and i was so confused um so they got me where they could best from a um medical perspective and i was still really struggling with food so when i'm trying to make sense of how this even started i think that there was a hormonal biological element mm-hmm. and i think i think it was like a perfect storm and then i think when i tried to lose weight it was like something in there triggered and i also know for myself and meeting other people that the majority of people who struggle with binge eating tend to be black and white, all or nothing thinkers. And so I was doing a lot of planning to restrict. That I think was one of the biggest turning points for me because when I was investigating binge eating, all I was hearing about was about don't restrict and restriction causes binge eating. And I thought I'm not restricting. As far as I was concerned, I was overeating. And then when I found the intuitive eating book and they talked about the last supper eating. How even the planning to restrict can trigger binge eating. That one was a real game changer for me because that really helped. So once I stopped planning, I was like, okay, I'm just i'm I'm not going to lose weight. That was tough. I had to do some body image work around that. Um, but once I stopped chasing the weight loss, the binge eating greatly reduced. Oh, there's so many layers to this. I'll make it as brief as I can. And then I sort of and a lot of people I see do the same thing. I went, went from binge eating into what felt like a more sort of general overeating. So it wasn't the big binges, I have to eat it all now in this moment, but I still felt a bit compulsive around food. I wasn't sure if it was just a lot of emotional eating. So then began sort of the next few years of kind of working on my relationship with food. And during this time, I made the career change to become a therapist. Now, when I first decided to do that, I didn't, didn't think I was gonna be working with eating disorders necessarily. It crossed my mind. I thought if I ever, in my mind, fix it, I don't use that word anymore, but if I ever fix myself around this, then maybe I would. Um, So I I was going to just do general therapy and kind of stay away from eating disorders. But as part of that, you have to go into your own therapy. So I had to have five years of therapy during my training. None of my therapists knew about eating stuff. And some of the things they told me were just really unhelpful. I think one therapist, while I was struggling with bulimia, suggested the 5-2 diet to me and just things like they just didn't have a clue they didn't have a clue so I'll often say that I don't feel like the therapy specifically helped with the food but it really helped me to understand myself more um, to reduce my black and white thinking so I think it helped me to be able to then do the work on the food if that makes sense So yes, it's a bit of an ongoing battle and I've recorded a couple of episodes recently on our Life After Diets podcast because I've been in New York for a couple of weeks of even that shift from UK to New York. All the food's different, my schedule's different, and that kind of, for a couple of weeks, I felt quite uneasy around food. It wasn't binging, but I wasn't really feeling that comfortable with some of the decisions I was making. So I, I feel like for me, it will always be an ongoing thing of trying to understand my relationship with food. Um... But now I'm in a place, as I describe it now, I don't suffer in the way that I used to suffer with food. But I also don't want to paint this picture that recovery is somehow this magical place you get to. You never have to worry about food. You only eat when you're hungry and you make amazing choices all the time. So, yeah, that's that's it. And as condensed as I can make it for you. (laughs) That's very interesting, and it's
2: such a great example of where we can arrive after healing. That it will never be perfect, and you will always have to do some work and be aware and mindful and conscious and keep doing it. Uh, and um, again, like letting go of perfectionist <laughs> mindset about uh, the things. Uh, and also I wanted to double uh, to, to clarify. So you mean that the reasons for having binge eating was both in your black and white thinking and perfectionism and also biological because of the tumor and yeah. hormone
1: yeah yeah i think that the hormonal issues because the tumor was pressing against the hypothalamus as well which controls appetite i think that the hormones meant that my appetite was higher than it would have been and then of course that was distressing i got in a battle with that and that and sort of my general temperament of the black and white thinking led me more vulnerable to an eating disorder, mm-hmm. whereas someone else with my condition might eat more and might gain weight, But if they don't have that black and white thinking um, or the same level of sort of distress and angst about it, then they may, it's not necessarily going to turn into an eating disorder. Mm hmm.
2: And we are very organically coming to the question about (laughs) what is eating disorder and the types of disturbances you work with, because we can have clinical eating disorder, uh, binge eating. And uh, do you work with bulimia? And if it's not clinical and subclinical, like emotional eating or overeating to some extent, which causes um, emotional discomfort and this caused by emotional discomfort um, can you explain us more about uh, definitions and what exactly you work with and maybe your favorite um, yeah
1: of course um, <laughs> yeah I, I used to work with all the eating disorders and now I only work with binge eating so I don't work with bulimia and I don't work with anorexia there aren't I don't think there are enough people specializing in binge eating I think it's probably the biggest one as well. Um, So, yeah, so I I really want to develop my expertise around that, continue to develop my expertise around that. So, yes, I think you make a really important point, which I think will be important to the listeners, like what's clinical, what's not clinical, and does it matter? Mm. So the definition of a binge is eating a large amount of food So an amount of food that they describe it that is definitely larger than what most people would eat in similar circumstances. So if you hadn't eaten for three days and then you eat a load of food, you might say that's not a binge because actually that would be a very healthy response to having been starving for a few days, potentially, especially if it wasn't a choice to starve, if you couldn't get the food, because there's a psychology of that. So it's eating a large amount of food. And then they say within a discrete period of time, and that is given as maybe two hours. And the last part is that there's a sense that you've lost control. So impulsive is a little bit more, you know, you're a bit mindless. You're not really thinking about it. You pick it up. Maybe afterwards you think, oh, I, I wish I would thought that through. Whereas compulsive and that sense where you've lost control, it feels like you're acting against your own will. It, and that's the frightening part. That I think is the most distressing part. So that's clinically a binge. But I I would work with a lot of people that... Again, because you're saying, what is a large amount of food? For some people, eating, let say, two chocolate bars, like for them, that felt like a binge. They had every experience of that being like a binge and they were maybe as distressed, sometimes more like depending on the person, than somebody who might have a much larger binge as well. So because I work privately and I'm not having to tick boxes for the NHS or anything like that, I would work with anyone who comes to me and says, I think I'm struggling with binge eating or even emotional eating some people might say it, overeating any of those kind of things where people feel like they're eating too much those would be the people I work with and then for it to meet binge eating disorder that I've given you the definition of a binge and then there are other things there are other sub criteria about guilt and disgust and shame so a lot of it is how you feel you have to be distressed about your behavior So if you know someone in your life and you're watching their behavior around food and thinking, I think they might have binge eating disorder, but that person doesn't care. (laughs) It's not an eating disorder. There's something else that's going on, but it wouldn't hit the category. There has to be the distress about it for it to be disordered. And then eating a lot of food when not hungry, eating very fast. There's a few little subcategories. And then the difference, there's only really one difference between binge eating disorder and bulimia and that is that bulimia involves compensatory behaviours. So bulimia is binge eating, followed by, you know, it might be fasting, it might be laxatives, it could be purging, being sick, over-exercise. And they say that it's disproportionate, the compensatory behaviours. But with diet culture, it gets really complicated. What's disproportionate? You know, in the old language, they talk about fasting is disproportionate. Well, now fasting is touted as this wellness tool. So if someone binges and then fasts, is it bulimia? Is it not bulimia? And this is where we get all the gray areas of trying to just figure out where a person might be at.
2: That's very interesting because I thought I had uh, binge eating disorder uh, in my mid-20s, but it was bulimia according to the definition because i did compensate by fasting and over exercising so it probably looked like binge eating but maybe if we use the official definition it was bulimia but does it matter
1: (laughs) yeah i think sometimes sometimes it matters because i will meet people and they'll say i've got binge eating disorder i have binge eating and then they're describing what's going on and I've said to people before, I don't think your problem is binge eating. I think your problem is restriction. And and for some people, when they stop the restriction and they stop the compensatory behaviors, it's always, it always stuns me when it happens. For some people, it's like a switch. They stop it and they're not binging and they're like, what, why didn't anybody tell me this? And then for many others, myself included, there are other emotional and psychological elements that need some attention as well. But for some people, they just spring into something else when they realize that it's the restriction and the attempts to control and and for many actually letting go of the restriction and attempts and control is not an easy thing because there's so much safety that we seek in that particularly like if you are chasing something to try and feel good enough about yourself and you mentioned perfectionism as well and, and all of that ties in Um. so it can sound very simple what to do um, but the implementation of that isn't always as straightforward for everybody.
0: That flows nicely into the next question, is why do people do, why do people binge? What are the causes have you seen throughout your practice? And Mm -hmm. you have seen so many people, you have so much experience. So why, yes, perfectionism, probably one, one of the things, as you say, restriction, then probably you know, media, all the hedonic environment that we live in and food is everywhere. And I can only imagine what's going on in New York on the food land (laughs) um, with portions in America and everything. So um, tell us, what causes this behavior?
1: I was talking about this with a friend the other day, and I said, I honestly reckon there's probably about 30. And she said, go on then. And I think I got to about 22. (laughs) So I probably won't remember them all now. But I guess... If we start with something physical, right, almost almost all our major hormones in our body, you stick those hormones in Google and say, does X affect appetite? And the answer is yes. Does estrogen affect appetite? Yes. Does testosterone affect appetite? Yes. Cortisol? Yes. Thyroid hormones? Yes. So there's all this hormonal impact as well. PCOS is another one. I think I see a disproportionate number of people with PCOS because that then affects how insulin works, which then affects appetite. So you've got all the sort of body things and then you could look at the brain, the neuro neurobiology of some people. So those with ADHD are much more vulnerable to something like binging. Even people generally when it comes to dopamine because we know that eating releases dopamine. So that can be another cause of that. Um, To manage mood as well. So we know that eating can reduce anxiety because it stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system and can make us feel calmer. So some people use it in that way. Others use it to try and manage depression. Like they're trying to like boost themselves and boost their mood. They're just feeling so low and it's this one source of pleasure in their life. So that's already like all the physical things. (laughs) Then of course, we've got to look at dieting and body image attempts to control. All these messages that we're taught about how much is appropriate to eat means we're then trying to figure out what and how much we should eat with our thinking brains. We're not, we've lost touch with being able to listen to our bodies. So our bodies might be telling us something, what we want something, but the mind is battling with that. And we get in a battle between body and mind. If the 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 body kind of overwhelms, you end up binging. And a lot of people describe when they binge, it's like a light switch going off in their brain. Like you're on autopilot. It's this sort of mindless back and forth. It doesn't even really feel like you're making decisions. Also, when we get stressed or we have a lot of um, emotional reactivity, all that's going on in our limbic brain. So that's our lower brain, becomes very active. And you can see it on the MRI scans that the blood flow moves away from the prefrontal cortex into the limbic brain. So I wonder if that is the moment where it feels like the thinking goes because Mm -hmm. it's like almost the oxygen isn't getting to our prefrontal cortex. We're not able to think. We're not able to remember that thing that we said you know earlier on that we were going to do it if we were in this position again and so you're then operating from your limbic brain what's also in the limbic brain your appetite so now it's like because everything's going on here you don't feel like you're making decisions but the decision's being made in the lower part of the brain it's like you're unable to hold on to the executive functioning part and that can come from guilt and shame some of that can be triggered around food some of that can be triggered in other areas of life stress is going to be part of that too We haven't even got on to thinking styles, (laughs) (laughs) which is the black and white thinking, right? It's that idea of if I can't eat perfectly or if I can't eat well enough, what the hell, what's the point? You know, if I'm not going to get it right, like I'm not, I'm almost that checking out that can happen. Um, for some people, food really becomes this, uh, strong association with self-soothing and being able to feel calm. Um. And and many people that can happen in childhood, if there is emotional, physical neglect, food becomes a way to try and feel okay with um, emotions that you don't know what to do with as a kid, you don't even know you're having emotions, you just know something doesn't feel right, your thinking is not sophisticated to understand what it is, and food is one of the few things that kids can get hold of right, six, seven year old is unlikely to be able to get hold of alcohol or harder drugs or something like that so it becomes the first thing and that pairing can happen really young and can continue through life as well and we lived in a world of like this contradictory you know we're supposed to be eating less but you're saying like have these big portions and these are the advertisers with all these kinds of foods so we now have these foods that are, are just delicious and we have this desire to want to keep eating them as well that can be part of it too habit sounds like a a benign thing but habits uh, can be incredibly difficult to break i can't there was a article in nature journal recently i think only about a month ago where they looked at brain scans of people with bulimia and binge eating disorder and they saw that there was more activity in the habit area of the brain than in controls not sure necessarily what that means whether it's just because they're playing out habits more that it gets stronger or whether there's like a A brain predisposition thing that might make you might make it harder actually once a habit is established to change that habit so there's a few i guess to begin with and for some people (laughs) we're also recognizing our appetites fluctuate and i think this is this is i think key for many people because especially you probably see it in your world as well. When you've met other nutritionists, you see what other people are doing. People are being given these food plans. And the expectation is you eat the same amount of food every day, unless you're exercising then you can have a bit more that day. But for me, if I do exercise, I feel less hungry on the day. I feel more hungry the next day. That's when I feel like I want and need the food. And if you look at people with female hormones, we're going through our menstrual cycles. That's impacting our appetites. They're going to be days when we want to eat more. Um, so yeah, and I've probably missed a few off of the top of my head cuz trying to reel them off in a list. But uh, sometimes people I think feel a little bit disheartened when they hear everything that they're up against. Um because we can we can only work with what we know and so much of the biological stuff we can't even measure and if we know it's going on we then not, can't necessarily change it. There's still so much that we're trying to learn and understand about compulsive eating and what what drives somebody to binge. Um, and someone else is just not not vulnerable to that.
2: What sounds very exciting uh, for me the most, uh, which is uh, the gray area for me, is uh, how uh, hormonal uh, imbalances can affect our appetite. As you said, as you mentioned, the physiological reasons uh, uh, in the first place. I'm wondering how prevalent is it And do you send clients uh,
1: to do blood tests? Again, it it depends where they are. And and doctors aren't necessarily going to authorize blood tests just on the basis that you're saying that you're feeling out of control with food and they're not really going to know what to be checking. Um, Because you've also got things like ghrelin and leptin, and we we don't have ways of measuring them Mm. in tests that you can get done at the local doctors. So but the hopeful part, I think, is is how much our psychology can even affect our hormones. You know, even the anticipation of food, the body starts to produce ghrelin, even based on how much the brain thinks you've eaten affects how much your ghrelin comes down or not, not even necessarily the amount of food that you eat. So I think when we're not conflicted with ourselves. It's also, if you feel guilt and shame after you eat, how can you feel satisfied and guilty and ashamed at the same time like those two are not very compatible so I think when we make peace with food and we slow ourselves down if we can calm ourselves down around food then we will retain some clarity and perspective and we can just kind of do the best that we can and that perfectionism part as well like knowing that there are some days that are not going to look anything like what an ideal quote-unquote ideal day would look like um, and that that's okay but the minute you panic about that you then start stressing about every decision going forward and it, it gets worse and worse the more stress that you get and that becomes a vicious cycle so it's about learning to trust our bodies and I think we can because I still have these hormone problems and the uh, medications that I'm on are not great at really mimicking what the body does but I think I've found ways to calm down about food to listen to slow down and because the appetite comes from so many different parts of us even if one part isn't working very well maybe the other parts can work well enough to get us into a place where we feel regulated enough around food
0: and when when you were talking about learning how to trust um our bodies do you use a lot of intuitive eating techniques in your therapy or how how, how do you work with the, this start trusting yourself people are like yeah. okay what should I do yeah, but if I trust,
1: yeah. I will overeat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it it depends because sometimes um so another way it can show up is if there's something else going on in your life let's say that you're in a, a marriage that isn't working or in a job that you absolutely hate sometimes and this is where the psychotherapy stuff comes in sometimes having this food problem is a welcome distraction from that. Because like, I've got to fix this food problem before I can even look at other areas of my life. And so occasionally there are things going on in people's lives that, that if they work on that first, actually then the food becomes a little bit easier to work on that. So some people say, how do I stop eating when I'm stressed? My question would be, why are you stressed? Like, is there anything that we can do to reduce those stress levels? Because even if you're in a very busy job, That doesn't have to mean you're stressed. Stress often comes from how we're speaking to ourselves, but it's the belief that we can't cope or we're overwhelmed. This, that, that. So sometimes it's working on the thing that's not the food in order to be able to shift the food stuff. I do like the intuitive eating model. I tend to think personal experience and seeing it with clients as well. Sometimes intuitive eating can almost be treated like another diet, not necessarily just in that some people will do it to try and lose weight, but also in the sense of I'm either on it or I'm off it. So I'm either doing all the intuitive eating stuff or I'm off the wagon of intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. So I'll often introduce some of the intuitive eating principles to people, but I want people to take what are the ones that really resonate with them and have people to build up their own idea. I'll also often ask people what they want their relationship with food to look like and to come up with three words that look like that three descriptive words or emotional words and they become like an anchor because the thing is if we're telling people okay don't diet don't restrict don't over control food a lot of people are thinking well that, that just sounds like chaos to me I don't know how to eat unless I am putting in some rules so for example my three words for my relationship with food is balanced regulated and free the free part is really important the free part is what keeps me away from over-controlling the regulated for me is because i i feel like there are biological things that are a bit out of whack with me and and balance is just that's that for me is a feeling i'm not saying balance and going like okay i need x amount of vegetables x amount of protein it's like i want to feel balanced around food so therefore if i was making a food decision i don't have to do this consciously anymore but i did at one point if i was trying to decide what to eat for lunch or dinner i'd be like okay what what feels like a free choice what feels balanced, what feels free. And other people will come up with words like um, enjoyable and peaceful and um, calm, whatever whatever their words might be, and using those words as an anchor in the decision-making process. There's a certain rebellion, I think, in many of us, especially those of us that binge. Binge eating can feel like this ultimate rebellion. So when I'm working with someone, I want to give them as much choice and autonomy about what are the things that are helpful, what are the things they want to implement. There's some practitioners will work, someone will come in and they'll say, okay, go and do a food diary this week. And and I this is what I did in CBT. I did eight weeks of a food diary and almost going by line by line, you know, what could you have done at this point? What could you have done at that point? And it was so cognitive. But for me, this was such an emote, like it, it didn't feel rational. So yeah, I just felt like I wasn't, I was failing at CBT. Because even though I was doing the meals and snacks, um, planning, I think, is a, a difficult one for anybody who struggled with an eating disorder, or binge eating disorder, um, because all that disordered thinking will come in. And this was where I made the mistake with intuitive eating myself, was I was thinking that it wasn't about planning. It was about figuring out whatever I wanted to eat when I wanted to eat it. But what that does, if you do it that way, is it sets you up to have to make a lot of food decisions throughout the day. So I even often I often move away from the word planning because it can be so tied in with a diet plan or a nutrition plan and can feel uh, closed in. But I'll say to people, if you wake up in the morning and you've got no idea what you're going to have for breakfast, lunch and dinner, you're setting yourself up. So I tend to get people I say, right, okay, have an idea of what you're going to have for breakfast, lunch and dinner. If it comes to that time and there's something that you want instead, you can change your mind. It's almost like this is what I'm going to have unless there's something else that I'm like, actually, no, I really want that. Or I've been invited out and I'm going to go out and do that. What you don't want is to get to a meal time and be like, oh, I don't know what to eat. I haven't really got anything in. And now I'm really hungry. And the thought of spending 40 minutes preparing something isn't going to work. And then like you're getting into that tense place. And then you're making that decision from a, a tense place which isn't going to work out well for people who struggle with compulsive eating. So those are a few of the ways, again, it varies so much um, from person to person and based on what they're bringing. I'd say those are some of the biggest themes that come up.
2: That's such a great advice. I would take it for myself because I got too much into intuitive eating. And as you said, there was, there is no structure and I have to make a lot of decisions and really listen to my body before before making a choice. <laughs> <laughs> do I really want Pro a son, or am I okay with uh, something more balanced? Yeah, um, and uh, I really love that idea of pre-planning and then changing the plan if necessary. That's uh, I'm taking it um, definitely.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, please, we need the flexibility because if you if you have a brain that knows how to flip that switch into compulsive eating, it can do that at any whisper of thinking that it's being caged. So we want to feel, really feel free uh, with the food choices, which is why the word free was just so important for me. Because I realized the minute I didn't feel free, there was a mm-hmm. part of me that just wanted to go out and eat everything.
0: I have a quote from your book. Free to choose what you put into your body and free to have control over your destiny. <laughs> That's exactly on the, on the free page.
1: I was like, oh, I knew I was reading about freedom here. Um uh-huh the i could oh can i make one comment yeah yeah because um i'll go you said something about listening to your body and this Mm -hmm. is the advice that comes to intuitive eating and everywhere and i think it's really unhelpful as a standalone piece of advice because if we're listening to the body the body doesn't have language right so the body has to be interpreted in the mind well what's in the mind a shed load of shoulds and shouldn'ts and diet culture right so that's yeah. the frustration people think that they're broken they think that they cannot like the signals have gone wrong but I don't know that that's necessarily the case for the majority of people but that's why we need to look at trying to work the um unwork or untie some of the diet culture messages as well because listening to your body can be just the most unhelpful piece of advice for someone who's got a lot of mental noise around food mm mm-hmm. And the rules, you know,
0: don't. I'm
1: very grateful
0: for the nutrition education and one year of really heavy nutrition, and you know how you have to eat. But at the same time, it messed up a little bit (laughs) the choice point because you're taking this breakfast and think, Jesus, no protein at all. And then you start getting like, "Mm, where's my 25 grams? The same with with lunch, the same as dinner. And then, oh, am I on uh, one gram of protein per day, per kg, or am I less? Um, I'm supposed to be eating this. Like all this knowledge of buzzing in your head and then you start getting stressed. <gasps> I'm not having protein, I'm having too much too much carbs. And then when that point was let go, I said, okay, some days I'm not gonna get. grams of protein per one kg even if i'm training because i just don't want that chicken or something um yeah knowledge could be also very big block to let it go because
1: you know how it has to be ideally yeah Um, yeah exactly that and and i think yeah too much knowledge it's like we've paralyzed ourselves with too much knowledge in some ways and 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 when you you guys have looked at like nutrition research and your qualifications and things like that, and how difficult it is to really make these very broad, definitive statements about anybody's body to say that that is the optimum amount for you, Oksana. Like it could have been for someone, it could be like an average in some study for a load of people. So they're like, well, this is the average, but it gets fed to us in these absolute terms. No, this is how much protein you should have if you want this result. Mm. Mm.
0: I would like to talk um, also a bit about the blocks, um, the biggest blocks that are on the way to recovery or even taking any steps to recover. Um, Because I got a message three weeks ago from uh, somebody um, and a friend of theirs that we both know has a problem. And from the sound of the story, it is either bulimia or bulimia because there is a compensatory behavior. And she said, um, I told her to go to the specialist. I told her to talk to you and she wouldn't go because she feels so ashamed that she can't even send you a message. She can't even talk about this. Uh, And it's very sad because it's a young woman suffering. And I know how it feels and how it may feel um and I was like oh, should I should I do it myself but I, sh- I can't because I'm breaking confidentiality I can't do this and the this shame is holding her so much even though she knows that she's in a very bad place so um can we talk a bit more about the blocks and shame and how it's all connected
1: yeah I think shame is the biggest block for change mm-hmm. Because it doesn't feel rational when you're in it, why you can't just change the way you're eating or eat the way you say you're going to eat. So I'll often ask people, how many times have you said to yourself, made a promise to yourself that from this moment onwards, you're going to do it differently around food and really meant it at the moment with every fiber of your being. And many people say like thousands or every day. That's what I'm saying to myself. And this is the really corrosive part about it is because then it feels like you are breaking this promise to yourself over and over again, which erodes your sense of self-trust and your sense of um, even understanding like which version of you is going to show up today. There can be this sort of splitting. I feel like two people, there's this part of me that really wants this and there's this part of me that just acts out and I just want to destroy her. So when when the brain is trying to figure out like, why can't I fix this problem? solution that it comes to oh there's just something wrong with me that I've been trying over and over again everyone else seems to know how to feed themselves I used to think to myself gosh I can't even do the most basic thing as a human being and that is just to feed myself in any kind of appropriate way and so I remember just feeling like the lowest of the low you know worse than like I don't know it was it was it was tough and I I think one of the ways to release shame is through hearing stories. So I love it when people are having conversations about this kind of thing and people are sharing their experiences when people can relate and think, oh, I'm not the only one. Because when you're in it, it feels like the loneliest problem to have. And then when you hear someone talking about it and it's like, oh, and you feel that resonance in you with that person and what they're saying and that connection, that sense that you're not alone, that like it's it's at the visceral level. I think it's so important to have that feeling, have that experience. And it's one of the reasons why I self-disclose as much as I do. There are a lot of therapists who really don't approve of the fact that I talk about as much of my experience as they do. They don't think it's appropriate. But actually, from the feedback that I have from people, I I believe it really helps. I don't think every therapist has to do that at all. But um, I've had to really think about like, the ethics of that and if it's okay. And I really believe that it's the best way to help people in the way that I want to so I think that hearing listening to other people talking about it I think communities and groups are amazing for that we have like a podcast community I'll give it a little plug here if that's all right that people can join for like 10 pound a month and then we're in a Facebook group together and and everybody's sharing what's going on and supporting each other and we have monthly calls that's all included in that as well so it's this low-cost option where people can come and not feel alone connect to people and we've had people like meet outside of the group in real life (laughs) people are still doing that (laughs) um which is great and then I run therapy groups and workshops as well and you see it when someone new comes into the group and they hear people speaking you sort of almost like see their whole bodies just kind of drop Mm. so I think when when we are able especially then we get to the point where we are able then to share with people that get it you might have people in your life that that care about you and support you but if you've not experienced this how can you really understand and loved ones are frustrated as well because they just want you to do the things that you say that you're going to do and so having communities where you can share and feel supported and validated and understood and you're understanding other people as well that does the most for shame because you could read a book on shame you could all kinds of things but connections safe connections is really what pulls us out of shame because shame sends us into a little cave on our own and the other part is the the self-compassion piece. And isn't it easier to have compassion for other people than it is for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So when we're in groups and communities and you're hearing somebody talk about something that you resonate with so strongly and you feel compassion for them, it's a little bit like holding a mirror up because you're feeling the compassion for the thing that you struggle with too. And we know that compassion, it it cools down that emotional reactivity. So, like when I was talking about the limbic brain, when that part of the brain calms down, our thinking can come online. So, as long as we don't use our thinking to shame ourselves and start beating up on ourselves, because then we're just going to drop back into emotional reactivity. We use our thinking to gain a bit of perspective, to be compassionate, to try and figure out how we want to show up for ourselves, even if we're feeling disappointed. I'll say to people I'm working with them, I'll, I'll ask them. So how do you want to show up for yourself when you feel like you have failed at your own expectations? And people really struggle with that question because they're like, I don't want to anticipate failing at my own expectations. I just want to meet my own expectations. Don't tell me that I need to think about how to act when I fail. But we all fail to meet our own expectations at times. If it's not with food, it's with something else. And if we don't learn how to have our own back with that, we'll spiral into unhelpful behaviors, which could be food for somebody. It could be something completely different for another person.
2: And we uh, we were going to ask uh, about the ways people can um, help themselves if they don't have enough money for individual private therapy. And I think what you said, the group, which is lower in cost, but can be so healing and so therapeutic being among people.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what's available in the Ukraine, but the Beat Charity the eating disorder charity in the uk they have um support groups online that you can access for free Mm -hmm. um social media you know if you pick and choose wisely you can find great communities on there as well we at least we live in an age of information Mm -hmm. which can be amazing but it can also be confusing as well because you'll be hearing two sides because you'll see the black and white you'll see the food freedom people that are saying all foods fit we need to make peace with food and then you'll see the people on the other side saying no it's all about sugar and you should be eating keto or give up sugar like an abstinence approach as well um and so I think another block for some people is they're hearing these two different messages and they're jumping between the two so one minute they're trying this and then that seems too hard or it's not working so then they try that and and trying to find a place to kind of rest and figure out because you can binge on information as well and I've certainly done that and I'm feeling, oh, rubbish. I want to hear I want to hear someone tell me something that's going to make me feel better, that's going to give me that feeling of resonance. So, again, a big part of my what I've been doing and practicing is spending time with myself because we need to take this information, but we also need to spend time in quiet still. And I mean mentally still. I can be walking. That's self-reflection. Because actually it's that old proverb that the treasure we seek is in the cave we fear to enter. Everyone wants me to tell them exactly what they need to do. And I'm like, let's look at this. Now you take that information in. How does that sit with you? We're we're all looking for a savior. And um, there's no one out there that can save us. We have guides. We have people that can support us. We don't have to do this alone. But And that's why the self-loathing part, we have to shift that. Because if we really don't like ourselves, spending any time in any kind of quiet in our own minds can feel unbearable. And I've been there. There have been times when that's exactly what food's been for me. It's been a way because I just have felt too uncomfortable being in my own company. Mm-hmm. Um. So the self-acceptance part of that, I think as well, is a a key element. In order to be able to change, there are practical things to do. Like we were saying, I think, before the recording, like with nutrition, you can offer the practical things but really, how do people then get themselves to do the practical things? That's the inner work. There's guidance and advice out there, but we have to spend time with ourselves to figure out what that is for us. I'm conscious about time, and but we have another uh
0: last question, <laughs> uh, if that's okay. And that would be after healing, is it normal to be is it normal to be around food again, or what is the reality after healing? I know you wrote a post, and uh, I think it was a, a YouTube video as well on this topic. And it's important for people to hear that it's a, it's not a final destination. There's no X point where you're okay. You're fine. <laughs> now we can go on. It, it's um, yeah. So what is normality around food?
1: Mm-hmm. That that's going to vary a lot from person to person. Um, and people heal to different degrees. and But I think that we've actually just recorded a podcast episode on this, but it won't be out for a couple of weeks. There can be this very shiny view of recovery of what that should look like. It's like I'm over here at a one in the chaos and I'm looking at a hundred, this shiny, perfect view of recovery where I get there. Because I, I thought when I recovered that I thought, well, if I can recover from this, I can do anything and if I could recover from this I'll never be unhappy again because like this is the worst thing ever and if I, you know and you get to this place of recovery and it's like oh I still have to feel all the things and Steph and I joked Steph my my co-host we joked that because people often say like oh I don't know what I would think about if I wasn't thinking about food and that what I've ended up thinking about is the big existential questions of life <laughs> what does it all mean <laughs> like what if it's meaningless and, Other questions that come in, I'm like, oh, I kind of might have preferred the question to have been about food. So, well, people will say, well, if full recovery is not possible, would feel hopeless. What's the point? But if you're at a one and you want to be at 100, but let's say 100 isn't really realistic. It probably doesn't exist for most people, if not everybody. Would a 34 still be worth it? If you're at a one, being at 34 is better than a one, right? Or being at 70 as opposed to a one. So there's this scale and there's also this sort of fluctuation. So one of the ways that I talk about recovery, I talk about it as in two states, right? So state A is like the three words that you want around food. So for me, balance, regulated, free. When I feel like that around food, I'm in state A. State B is, is the chaos. It's the binging, it's the compulsion and all of that. The whole goal, I think, of recovery is to learn how to get yourself from state B, the chaos, into state A, which is what you imagine freedom and calmness and ease looks like around food. And knowing that as you're doing this, you're going to be going between states. But whenever you're in state A, whenever you're in that place of ease, you want to really kind of prime your brain to recognize what this is, what it feels like, how you think about food, how you make decisions when you're in this more recovered place. Because when you're back in the chaos, it's hard to even remember what that was. So recovery, rather than this linear journey of getting from A to B, it's often moving between A and B. But the idea being that you start to spend more and more time in state A. So maybe to start with, you're in state B for like 99% of the time. And then maybe after a while, maybe it's 70% of the time, you're in the the stress and the chaos. And 30% of the time, you're feeling free. And then gradually that shifts until now you're more in the recovered state than you are in the chaos. And the more time you spend over there, the more it starts to feel like your default and the more like more like you that that starts to feel. And, and I think this can be helpful because otherwise what happens is people start doing the work and the minute they slip into state B where they're binging again, they feel like they've gone back to square one. They feel like all the progress that they'd made up to that point has been undone. And that is the most psychologically damaging thing to the recovery process. So we can shift how we think about that in that way. So it could be for some people, they get to a place where they're 80% state A, but they still visit state B from time to time. And some people will never go back to state B. But this is how I try to offer it as a hopeful thing, because wouldn't you still prefer your majority of time to be easy around food? And then state B doesn't become as bad because you don't panic and you don't go into shame and you don't go into despair. So state B can get to the point where it just starts to feel a little bit like a wobble. And then you, you rebalance yourself because you've learned how to. That resonates with me
2: a lot. Uh, Do we have time to discuss that? But yeah, I still sometimes have days where I eat more emotionally, like once a month, but I know that, yeah, it happened, but it doesn't happen as often as it used to be. And that's good enough for me. I know that the next day I'll be fine again.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly that like there's not the panic the brain panics and stresses out now it's even harder to make food decisions right and and also in your self-esteem like if I was eating quote-unquote well I felt amazing about myself like this was the person I wanted to be and if I wasn't oh my goodness I'm the worst person in the world like and that I think is the foundation of disordered eating it's hooking your sense of self and who you are on how you're eating and whether you like how you're eating or not So we also want to kind of unhook those two things as much as possible.
0: I love that part and it's the job that has to be done with the body image and self-worth and which contradicts all the uh, popular fitness Instagram profiles where they say if you don't follow this you are not disciplined you don't have enough motivation blah 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 and then all these labels Um, and uh,
2: it's sad. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. my pet peeve. Motivation, discipline and how it's looked in popular culture.
0: Sarah, thank you so much. It has been amazing uh, talking to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your expertise. And we really appreciate your knowledge and your thoughts uh, for sharing and all the Uh, resources that are available Um, so it's Sarah's book um, her podcast and YouTube we will have all the uh, links in the description of uh, this podcast and then it will be translated into Ukrainian if anybody is interested Uh, we will send you the link just to hear how it sounds (laughs) (laughs) yeah so uh, thank you so much and um, have a lovely Sunday time in New York
1: Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.